trigger warning. In today's episode, as our guest shares some of her story with us, it includes mentions of abuse, self-harm, and suicidal ideation. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Season 9 of the Millennial Pastor Podcast. I'm your guest host, Latia Frazier, and along for the ride will be my ableist sidekick, Josiah Jones. Listen now for honest conversations about disability in the church. Enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the podcast. On today's episode, we have Leslie. Leslie, can you tell us about yourself? Yeah. Hello. Uh, well, I'm Leslie. Thanks for the the name drop there. Appreciate it. Um, I am an ordained elder in the Church of the Nazarene, um, and I am currently a lead pastor in Washington State. Um, I've been here for a little over a year. I've been ordained since 2016. We got ordained the same year. Nice. Oh, okay. Yeah. And we're in the same state. And we're in the same state, yeah, which I didn't know until very recently. Washington State's not close to Washington, D.C. Because I'm Canadian and I didn't know American geography. So that was fun. It is fun that you have to say Washington State when you tell people where you live. It's like, I actually take issue with them. Like, I just want to say I live in Washington. If they meant Washington, D.C., they should add the D.C. But that's a whole other tangential thing. Absolutely. We can, were you we can. ordained in Kansas City? No, I was ordained on Canada West District. Okay. I kept all of my credentials up in Canada um, for a very uh, good reason. Okay. But it was very much home. I, lo- I still love Canada. Um, but my district was so incredibly supportive of me as a pastor. And it was important to be ordained there. All right. That's good. Um, can you tell... Tell us how you identify within the disability community. Obviously, folks can't see us um, because it's a podcast. So can you yeah. say more about that? Yeah. Even if folks could see us, they wouldn't see a disability with me. Um, I don't even always or often readily identify within the disability community. Um, so I have CPTSD, which is complex post-traumatic stress disorder and within that I um, part of it is also depression and anxiety and all of the triggers you could think of Um, so I I struggle I think to identify within the disability community just because it doesn't look like I am so I kind of feel like an imposter by saying that I am so it's an interesting conversation because within the disability community, we understand that there are both like visible disabilities and invisible disabilities, which we would uh, name like yours as. But I wonder, like, what? Tell me more about that struggle for you. Yeah. So I think I and I would be probably one of the first to say that. Of course, there are invisible and visible disabilities. That's just kind of a fact of life. Um, but I struggle with it because, and I don't, I don't really want to use the word high functioning, but that's the word I'm going to use anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, even after a conversation with me, it can be years before somebody puts it together that I struggle with mental illness, that I have a diagnosis. Um, just because I think even though I have come to terms, I'm using quotations, not that listeners can see, come to terms with it, there's still a sense of shame about it. Um, Culture tells us that mental illness is something to be ashamed of, um, that it is a moral failing, the struggle with that, that there's something wrong with me in that way. Um, And then you have the whole conversation of you're just doing it for attention. Um, So I try not to draw attention to myself. But I also know that there's a lot of times when I need people to be aware of it because it is a daily battle within my brain to smile and get out of bed and to put one foot in front of the other. 
thanks for that. Um, I think uh, whereas I can walk in the room and you get out, would see that I have a disability, do you feel like in some ways when you, I guess you have this this chance to like choose to identify when you, like when there's a conversation like this perhaps, or when you're having a particularly difficult day, do you feel like in a way that you have to continually, for lack of a better term, come out to folks? Yeah, I feel like I have to, especially if I'm in the midst of a trigger or if I am in, um, if I'm experiencing, I call them abuse adversaries, something that is connected to my trauma, a day, and I am just off my game. I forget things. I am often very rude. I'm weepy. Like I'm just constantly holding back the tears. I feel like I have to justify why I don't seem normal. Um, why I don't even seem like my nor- my normal self. I'm just constantly trying to be okay enough to not be the emotional girl in the room. I don't want to be the emotional girl in the room. That was my entire upbringing. That was my high school career. That was my university degree. I was the emotional girl. And now I've made it as a professional. Um, so I don't want to be the emotional girl. But I am a woman who has gone through capital T trauma. And I live with those effects of that every day. When you, when you speak to this, uh, as Latia said, coming out, uh, two things come to mind for me trying to sort of speak what folks might be assuming in their heads, especially if they don't have a concept for, you know, or they don't have lived experience with disability. I, I don't know if I want to call it ableist, but um, Latia will tell me if I'm right or wrong. One thing comes to mind that's just an assumption I would, I would have for everyday interactions is that there's a stereotypical assumption that it's just in your head. Um, I'm wondering how often that is experienced, uh, how much you hear that, how much you bear that burden. The second thing is sort of like the voyeuristic tendency for folks to want to know your business and say, well, why? What, it, what was the trauma? What happened? I'm just curious, is that something that happens when you do have these sort of come out experiences to explain the invisible disability you bear? Yeah, um, I'll speak to the second question of do people want to know my business? Yes. And people think they hear the word, they hear the letters PTSD and they think they know exactly why I have PTSD. So I get asked if I'm a veteran and I have, I, I do not let them believe I'm a veteran because I'm not and I have respect for a vet. Um, so I have to say no. And then they're very intrigued of like, but that's the only reason people have PTSD. So I just want to be like, and so many other things. Um, so I get asked that a lot if I do come out and say that I have. Um, I always add the word CPTSD just because it eliminates that a little bit. And I already forget what your first question was, so I can't even answer it. Oh, it was just it was just the assumption that I'm making about what other people might be thinking and not always wanting to say to you about, oh, well, isn't it just in your head? Why is it a big deal sort of a thing? And to that, I mean, I'm curious if that's a regular experience. Additionally, can you define the, like the, the, the entire acronym you're, you're sharing with us a little bit more specifically for those that are unfamiliar with it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I operate a lot. Um, People don't really say it to me that it's just in my head. I think because I have an official diagnosis. Um, I have been diagnosed by a medical professional. So people, all I have to do is say that. I don't say, oh, I'm just anxious. Like sometimes I'll say that. If I just say that, people are like, well, don't be anxious. Just stop. There's nothing to worry about. Um, Those people, I kind of want to drop kick to the moon sometimes because I'm like, okay, don't breathe. Like, yeah, just pray, pray harder, pray harder. Pray What's harder. the problem? Hold a lot before my official diagnosis. Um, and so I do struggle with that. I hear it, but it doesn't bug me anymore just because they, they just don't know. Um, we, it's not something that's, it's becoming more talked about, but people just don't know. And people are weird and awkward and don't know how to engage with something they can't see. Very well. I don't think people can engage with things they do see very well. So 
I used to struggle with it more, but now I don't. And then, so the kind of the biggest difference between CPTSD and PTSD is the complex part alludes to the trauma happening over months or years. Um, so it was ongoing trauma, whereas PTSD is a, more of a single event. Um, and it could be a couple single events that you have experienced. But the complex part is it ha- the same trauma was happening over a longer period of time. Which, especially when it's young, really messes with you and how your brain develops and all of those things. So I was three, four when my trauma started. Got it. Well, thank you for sharing and clarifying that. Yeah. I'm wondering uh, in terms of, um, like, I know you don't, you say you struggle even identifying within the disability community. But is there a time, and I think there is, like, where maybe this is something you knew for a long time, but, like, you got that diagnosis. So you sort of have, like, a before and an after. Um, What is that for you? Yeah, I have a big before and a big after, and it keeps kind of happening. Um, I didn't know as a child that I was being abused. Um, I thought it was normal life what was happening to me. So I didn't realize until I was like eight when I read something to my mom and kind of explained the story, explained it. But where my before really started was in fifth grade, I discovered self-harm. And fifth graders are what? 12, 10, somewhere in there. Um, And I just all of a sudden became an accident prone kid to to the world. Um, And then in seventh grade, my classmate committed suicide. And that's when there was a big light bulb moment for me of I could end this whenever I wanted to end it. Um, Then my parents divorced and I got out of my trauma. And that's when everything became hidden and I was just the depressed, emotional, hormonal teenager. And once I was assaulted, memories started to come and that's when things started to actually come along with a diagnosis it wasn't for years till i was diagnosed with cptsd but there were so many little things i knew my brain didn't work properly i knew it wasn't normal to self-harm that it doesn't make sense um but how it was that how it was then interpreted back to me or parroted back to me was that I didn't have enough faith. I wasn't a good enough Christian. I was destroying the temple of God. I must not love Jesus enough. And I think that was such a huge part for my shame because I was nine when I felt a call to ministry, which means I didn't start engaging in self-harm until after I was called to ministry. So can a pastor be somebody, can a pastor be a cutter? Um, can a pastor be somebody who's been suicidal? And those were big questions for 15-year-old Leslie. For sure. Thank you for sharing that. And I, I would say like that is a common theme with a lot of the um, people that we've had conversations with so far around that if you just had enough faith, then you would no longer have your disability anymore. So like, even if um, you know, even if people were to pray for you or whatever, um, and the the magic didn't happen, it's really uh like our fault that like mm-hmm. it didn't so good. Which leads me perfectly to the magic pill question, which is um uh, if someone were to create a magic pill or some because we're in a church context, someone would offer you pray for you, and by doing that, then you would no longer have uh, your disability. Would you take it or get prayer for it? Um, I have thought about this question for like two or three weeks since you first gave it to me. And my first response is, I already do. I already do take a magic pill. I 
I take multiple pills to help manage my symptoms daily. I took a pill before this podcast to help calm my anxiety so I didn't feel like I was going to throw up. Um, I, I do. In a lot of senses, I do take a magic pill to help. Um, but do would I love to have ultimate healing from PTSD? I, yes, I would. However, I don't. I don't want to lose what I have learned because I have learned so much about myself through all of this. But I think more than me being healed from PTSD, I really wish the trauma never happened. I really wish the abuse never happened. And I hate that the onus is now on me to be the one to fix it or get better when it was never my fault. And yet my abuser was loved and cared for. And now it's on me to have to decide to take this theoretical magic pill or not. So I think it makes me mad, but I hate that there are days when I can't get out of bed. And yet I still force myself to. I wish I didn't have to. Complicated answer to a very simple question. Yeah, no, it's not. Everybody's had their different uh, responses to that. But it makes me think about this question. Sometimes in our religious circles, even taking medication, as you say, to manage the symptoms of your disability uh, is sometimes discouraged, right? Because if you would just pray or if you would just... uh, be super positive you know you don't yeah. take this medicine what would you say for folks who have a stigma or feel stigma around taking medication that's helpful and makes them function in the world i say find a doctor you really like um i'm not going to force i i am in no position to force somebody to take medication um I was told at 16, I was, no, I was 15, that I would be on medication for the rest of my life. I am now 32, and that has remained true. I have had to go off of medication, and within two weeks of going off, I become suicidal. Um, while being a pastor, like, it's not an element of lack of faith. But I also understand that people think mental illness is a spiritual Illness as opposed to a physical one or a mental one. Um, And that makes biological, sometimes sometimes biological. Mm -hmm. And that makes me sad. I was even on Easter Sunday, I was even preaching a message in which um, I also used some scripture of like Jesus walked into the dark spaces. And even in the New Testament, I'm like, we know there's trauma, we know there's mental illness in the New Testament. But even in our scriptures, it's often labeled as possession, mm-hmm. being possessed. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some cases, I'm like, did Jesus really exercise a demon? Or did he just make the synapses in that person's brain operate how they were supposed to operate? Which is what the gift of, for me, disability theology, right? That folks who compiled the bible um didn't have a complex understanding of the human body right and so and we and we like in our humanity want to try and understand what we don't understand so demon possession seemed to be like oh this is it It, and but really what it was was someone who had a like mental health disability and in the same way that jesus offers um healing to folks who were um had physical disabilities uh offers it to those with mental health disabilities um more i think because of lack of access to society and uh, like religious and 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 all forms of life right to say 
um, you are healed is to say you can be in community again. And we seen as a human, um, because first Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. But because that wasn't something folks could see um, with with their eyes, he was like, okay, well then you can see this. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. I, I really appreciate um, some, I think Jesus is a little bit sarcastic sometimes and I appreciate that a little bit. A hundred and ten percent. Yes, I think so. Um, so in what ways has your body image or image of yourself been shaped by your disability? Ooh, that is a intense question. I think the most notably is that I feel like I have to constantly be justifying myself to myself, um, which gets very exhausting. Um, other people tend to have a lot of grace for me. Uh, and not because I have a mental illness, but because they're nice people and they like me. I don't think it has anything to do with a mental illness most of the time, but I don't have much grace for me especially I think as a clergy I think if I was another in another vocation um I wouldn't and I can't speak to this for sure I wouldn't feel this need to seem like I have it all together in order to look like I believe that God is good so I'm constantly feeling like I don't measure up because my brain doesn't work how I want it to work um so I just kind of walk around internally with this sense that I'm broken. I, I'm just broken and no one knows. I'm broken and no one knows. Um, and that I do a lot of therapy. I've done intense, intense therapy. Some weeks I saw my therapist four times a week because that's what it is to process trauma. But I still have this, this small little voice. Sometimes it's very loud that says you're broken. You don't just. Des- you don't deserve to speak. You don't deserve to be at this table. Uh, if people really knew how dark your brain was, how dark your thoughts were, they wouldn't be around you. Um, so I have to justify myself to myself a lot and constantly reframe myself to myself. Did that make sense or answer yeah. your question? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm wondering how then that shapes your view or relationship with God then. Mm-hmm. I think I'm going to tell a story of when I really encountered um, God incarnate. And it was, I was in my last year of college and my undergrad was behavioral science. So psychology and sociology. I had already had a couple ordination, like board of ministry interviews, but I was really mad at God um, for letting the abuse happen. And I was walking and praying. And I just kind of thought for a long time that God was punishing me um, for not having enough faith, even though I knew that wasn't true. That wasn't the God I believed in. But I was having it out with God, and I have like not audible, but very conversational relationship conversations. Oh, I did with God. Get it? Yeah. Um, and I was questioning God. I'm like, where were you? Where were you most nights? If you're everywhere all the time, can see all things, where were you? And God said to me, "Well, where do I live?" And I'm like a snarky 21 year old. I'm like, in heaven. God's like, no, with you. Where do I live with you? And I said, in my heart. He said, yes. So every time he touched you, he was hurting me. And in that moment, my relationship with God changed because all of a sudden, God was not indifferent to what I was experiencing. God was not embarrassed by the darkness of my thoughts. God was not judging me because I wanted a way out. God was saying, I get it. That was crap. That was hard. 
that was unfair, that was wrong, and that hurt. Without that experience, without that conversation between God and I, I don't know what my relationship with God would look like. But I recall that conversation with God regularly because God revealed to me that God is not indifferent to my pain and to my suffering and to my existence in this world. God is the always suffering God, that God is one that walks in the margins, is in the margins. So not just like they're realistically like looking, but like with, yeah. <laughs> so can you tell, talk about a positive experience you've had in the church uh, from those who like know about your disability because um, because you can walk in the room and nobody could know unless you help or somebody you would know. I have, I probably have more positive experiences within the church and mental illness than I do without, than I do negative. Um, I have repeatedly been told that my voice is important because mental illness is not a rarity. Um, I have always been welcomed at a table, even though I feel like I should not be there. Um, my board of ministry interviews were some of the most encouraging interviews I have ever experienced. And I think every board of ministry interview should be like what I experienced because they weren't interested in getting to know the pretending Leslie. They were interested in getting to know the authentic Leslie who had like every other person on the planet, things she struggles with, things she's processing through. Um, and I was, I was always cautioned to not openly share, to not like stand up in a pulpit and be like, so I was whatever, or I have whatever, just because that's not always a safe or helpful thing to do. But I was also always encouraged that I don't have to be ashamed and that even with a mental illness, wholeness is possible. Yeah. Do you, I guess, and this is a speculation question because you don't have a physical disability. Um, many folks that I've talked to, and this is uh, across denominations, right? So not pinpointing one particularly. I think that um, folks with more visible disabilities, the reverse would be true, that there would be more negative experience than positive. Mm -hmm. uh, what? some reflection on that maybe um i think yeah that is probably true because it is obvious now i i often got questioned of do you think you can handle being a pastor do you think you can emotionally handle being a pastor um to which i always want to say can anyone really emotionally handle being a pastor no we can't this is a crazy job we are burden bearers secret keepers, people leaders, lonely all the time. Like it's a hard job. Um, and I think where I resonate though with those who have visible disabilities, it's I want to say, trust me, trust me and my abilities and my ability to discern what I can and cannot handle. I want to they trust me. I have lived with this for a very long time. I, I know. I know what I can and cannot handle. Please stop trying to protect me because you're making me feel worse. Yeah. Not good, but good feedback. Um, <laughs> um, other thoughts that I've been thinking about is was there a negative experience that you had for folks that didn't know? That? Yes, probably um, the most common being 
people tell me they're afraid to tell me like criticism or um, constructive criticism because they don't want to upset me. Um, so I don't get treated as an equal in the sense of they don't want me, they don't want to be the one to cause me to spin out or to have a bad day or to self-harm or to whatever. Um, and that is such a frustrating place to sit. It happened with one of my, uh, when I was a staff pastor, I had a pastor say to me, I really want to be able to have like an open conversation with you where I'm not worried if I'm going to make you cry. And I had to say to him, I'm like, me crying has nothing to do with my PTSD. Me crying is a very normal response to how people deal with conflict in awkward and tense filled situations. Like, why are you? Why are you assuming this is connected to my mental illness as opposed to conflict is just uncomfortable and sometimes people cry when it's uncomfortable. I wanted to say you get loud in uncomfortable situations. Yeah. If you really want to put me at ease, don't get loud. But their default is to avoid and then say, it's because I was worried about you. And have you been confrontational in those moments? To say, yeah. I am more so now than what I was. Um, there has been a lot of, um, I'm going to use the word healing in the mm -hmm. sense of I'm processing trauma and negative beliefs that have held and all of that. As I have pursued wholeness and holiness, I have become more sure of my own voice and what my abilities are. So I am more confrontational or assertive about that now than what I was even three years ago. Uh, but that's because I'm getting more comfortable. And confrontational, like the word in and of itself doesn't need to be like aggressive, but sometimes confrontation is good. I, I, mm -hmm. I like confrontation. So yeah. maybe that's fine. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with disability theology, but has that been a helpful, if you are or know a little bit about it, has that been a helpful framing for you? Yeah, I'm, I'm familiar-ish with it. I'm probably uh, more, I'm probably just as familiar with it as most fully able-bodied people are, as in, I know it's a thing. Don't necessarily know if I could define it. Mm -hmm. Although in my circumstance, I, I see it. I think I can hold it more readily because I am also looking for places in scripture and in theology where we are engaging and asking those in the margins to be a part of how we view God and how God views us. Yeah. So it is a liberation theology that um, would say that there, that there is something about people with disabilities that reflect the image of God, that there is something about people with disabilities and theology that is informative for the whole church. And one of the fundamental texts is uh, Jesus's encounter with Thomas, uh, the resurrected Jesus, who whose body was disabled by the uh, disabling event of the, the crucifixion. But it's to say that when we read the healing narratives, we read it as a relationship, like restoration of relationship with God and with community and with well, all aspects of me and less about there's something wrong with you therefore uh you cannot be saved or in full relationship with god or whatever words we want to put there unless you um become a person without a disability so it doesn't preference um having a body that is a non-disabled. Yeah. And I would say that I 
I engage with that in the sense of I am no longer, even though I would probably take a magic pill, and I struggle with feelings of uh, brokenness regularly, I no longer believe the lie that I have to be fully functional in order to be redeemed and saved and holy, which I think is a, which I think is in thanks to um, disability theology. And just using the word that you used uh, throughout this at this point, uh, the word brokenness, I'm wondering, like my response to that in my head that's been going off is like, well, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with brokenness? And are we, not that we all have a disability, because I don't believe that, but we uh, in many ways experience brokenness and maybe maybe that's the fear of those without disabilities uh, that that there would be, it's a fear of brokenness or like acknowledging one's brokenness. Yeah. I, I think I use the word brokenness because I personally don't like the word illness. Um, I don't, there is, there is so much stigma connected to mental illness. And there is so much hate and harm connected to it that for me, saying I am mentally ill uh, actually causes me to spiral a little bit because it seems so uncarryable personally for me. Mm -hmm. uh, being broken, having a broken brain as I say to little kids, um, seems a lot more carryable and it keeps me out of the pit a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so that is why I personally use language, but I do have a mental illness. Um, so. so, I mean, and we didn't ask this question probably because of, because of earlier comments, but one of the questions I ask most folks is like, around language and what type of language you use when referring to yourself as a a person with a disability there's like my my leaning there is like people first language right so that i would if i were to describe you or someone with a mental health disability i would just say it's a mental health disability right i shy away from illness too because i view illness as like i have the flu which is an illness, and now I don't. But like a disability, while you could also not always have a disability, most times, if you're a person that live with it, you're going to live with it in some way for your whole life. Um, yeah, so I'm wondering, I guess, if you were to be in one camp or the other, if it would be like people first or identity first. Uh, it would be people first, mm -hmm. hands down, without without even thinking. Um, it's people first. I think it's so, so much people first for me because I was labeled the cutter um, and I hated being labeled as a cutter. I'm like, no, I'm a person who cut. Like, let's just move on. Like, I do other things. Right. Um, and it was so damaging, that label. Um. But I also, even then, you use the term um, a person who has a mental disability. Mental health. Mental health disability. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I'm like, this doesn't sound right. <laughs> uh, it, it is so manageable that I even, I feel like a fraud by saying disability because it is so, in my case at least, it's so manageable with medication and therapy. Um, and I would say that makes me think, though, like there's a spectrum of disability for, for anything, right? Like, so someone who it might not affect major parts of your day all the time or the way you function in the world all the time. Whereas I have to think about 
how I'm going to get there, where I'm going to get there, like all those things. And yet there are also times in your life when your disability affects you more than mine does, right? So like it's it's kind of this, um, there's two major models of disability, which are medical model and social model, but then there's another one that's coming out and it's the limit model. It's to say that today, um, there may be less limit on how my disability is affecting me. But when I wake up tomorrow, it could be a whole different story. So, like, it it leaves room for, like, difference and, you know, however our bodies are functioning that day or the, the, the environment we're in that day. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I always tell people that, like, you just have to do your best today, which is different than what your best is yesterday because it's not yesterday anymore and there's also this uh spoons theory which says and you like you decide whatever the number is but i'm making it up like i have five spoons today um and i have to decide where i'm going to use my spoons because once those are out i'm done right Mm -hmm. and i think we all have that but i think folks with disabilities are more aware of uh those more aware of the the very real reality like i only have five so how am i going to use my five today yeah and for me my spoons get used in such different ways like we're going we're getting ready to go into district assembly and i know because my abuser was a man being in a room of men takes mm-hmm. Boon. just being in the room um with men i don't know take spoons because i walk into the room i make sure i know who is behind me i make sure i know where my exits are i make sure i know where the video cameras are i make sure i know where an ally or somebody i trust is i make sure i know where my phone is I make sure I'm wearing shoes I can easily run in. I have all of these things just because I am in a room of people who look like my abuser. And that's my reality. Right. Yeah. So I want to shift the conversation just a little and ask what brings you joy in ministry? Because yes, we are ministers with disabilities, and this is a podcast particularly about disability this season, but also there's more to us than that. So what brings, what are some joys in ministry? Uh, some joys in ministry for me are being able to do those relational things. Um, being able to sit with somebody across from my table or having coffee and hearing their story um just meeting them where they're at um i love that i love i love hearing little kids run down the hall say pastor leslie hi like (laughs) it it just makes me happy um and really i love i love the day in and day out of ministry it's hard i think ministry would be way easier without social media I think it would just be easier. Um, it's hard and it's messy, but I can honestly not imagine doing anything else. I think I said that wrong, but I can't, I like, it is what I would, I knew when I was nine that I was going to be a pastor and here I am doing it. And I don't really have days. I feel like quitting. I have days. I feel like going to bed at like nine 30 in the morning. But knowing full well, I'll probably, hopefully, get up tomorrow and try again. Um, so it mostly brings me joy. Yeah, and that's good to hear. Uh, especially in this um, current climate, like in general, with the capital feature, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What grieves you about the church? Um. What grieves me is that the church is not the model of humility. 
and relationship. Um, we should be the very we should be the ones modeling how to listen, how to be kind. We should be the ones modeling the via media, the middle way. Um, and right now, especially in the United States, because I know it's happening in Canada, but I don't see it as extreme in Canada as it is in the United States of you are either on an extreme or you don't matter. Those who live in the middle don't matter because they obviously don't care. I wish we listened better and modeled better because of killing us. I think in every denomination, our inability to listen and to act instead of react is killing us and our witness. What brings you hope about the church? That there are people who desperately want to listen. That Jesus is still saving and redeeming and calling people to himself. That even though the church is a dumpster fire, specifically in the USA, God is still calling people. God is still saying, I have the way. Um, and there are still faithful saints who are saying, I know the way. Not in a, I am right and you are wrong kind of way, but in the kind of way that I always think of Lazarus coming out of the tomb. Like I'm sure he was able to then go talk to other people and say, I know the way out of death because I was dead. Come follow me. I'll lead you. We have faith saints who can do that. Yeah. I love it. Two more questions. One, what would you say to someone who has a disability, who feels a call to ministry and is contemplating or maybe in the middle of the board of ministry interviews for the ordination process? Say. I would say, ask for what you need. Um, if you ask for what you need, um, something that was really helpful for me um, and with what I struggle with was I asked for what questions were going to be asked beforehand, not because I needed time to prepare, but because it lessened my anxiety. And then did the question come up of like, you won't always have this? And I said, you're right. But in this case, I can. This isn't, this isn't some crisis that needs to be dealt with. Ask for what you need and find somebody on board of ministry who you know and who can pour into you. Um, I think having a true ally on the board of ministry is a game changer because it is somebody who knows you beyond your disability where so many people are trying to judge you on your disability or because of your disability have somebody who knows beyond and who can speak to who you are in those closed door conversations and then what would you say to those on the board of ministry who will encounter folks um with disabilities, with a call to ministry? I would say trust them. Trust what they say. If they say they can, don't give them any other, don't give them a harder time because you don't think they can. Trust that they can. They have been through harder than what you probably have. So trust them. And then is there anything else that you, that we haven't said that you want to make sure is said or anything you want to plug? Uh, before we end our conversation today? I don't think so. This has been a great conversation. Um, just listen. Just listen well. Listen to understand and not respond. Listen well. People have a lot going on and we never know what it is. None of us are mind readers. Well, thanks so much for being willing to have this conversation. Josiah, did you have anything? 
you want to No, I was just going to say thank you. I had a really silly spoon story, but it seemed like way too serious a time to bring it up because it was so... I'll just share it now and I'll cut it out later. Yeah. Uh, my my kids literally lose all of our spoons like every three months. <laughs> yeah. And so when you share the, I only have so many spoons uh, metaphor initially, and then like I've been processing it. This week was the week we literally ran out of spoons. Like right now, my kids are suffering the the wrath of I'm not going to the store today because you lost all the spoons. And no joke, every three months I have to go and just like hunt across the backyard to find spoons because they just like take a thing outside and lose it. It's the craziest phenomenon ever. But I'll cut this out. Sorry. <laughs> Nothing. We, legit- we legitimately lose forks in our house. I have no idea where our forks are, and we're, we don't have kids. Like, it is too grown adult <laughs> to be four. <laughs> no, I, I find spoons, like, under mattresses, in dressers, under the back deck, in the treehouse. It's wild. I'm like, they're not allowed to eat anywhere but the kitchen. So the level of sneakiness that all four of my children are, exa- it's, it's crazy. So, but I'll cut all this out. Don't worry. I have nothing serious left to add. I was just wanting to sit and listen. So, <laughs> Pastor Podcast was created and produced by Byron Certain and Josiah Jones. This season's guest host is Latia Frazier. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please be sure to rate, review, or subscribe and visit themillennialpastor.com for more podcasts like it.